Today's scripture reading comes from the book of Luke, chapter 9, verses 22 to 26. And he said, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. And he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Then he said to them all, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. Last week we uh, all heard about the uh, suicides of two very high-profile people in Kate Spade and Anthony Bourdain. And uh, the, the loss of Bourdain hit me uh, personally because I'm a fan of his. And if there is one person uh, that is almost single-handedly responsible for bringing non-Western food to the forefront, it is Anthony Bourdain. And so his loss is uh, our loss, uh, a loss for the entire world. And, um, and so we mourn that, uh, that tragedy that took place. Uh, statistics show that since 1999, uh, the rate of suicide has increased 28% in our country. Uh, in 2016 alone, there were over 45,000 suicides that took place. And yes, to mental health issues. But there does seem to be more going on than just that whenever someone takes their own life. Or whenever someone walks into a school and starts shooting people and then takes their own life. Suicide is not just a one-dimensional thing. Suicide is a multifaceted thing. The series that we've been doing for the past few weeks is called An Upside-Down Life. And the reason why we're calling this series An Upside-Down Life is because there's a kind of living that leads to dying, and there's a kind of dying that actually leads to living. And so if you take a look with me at verse 24... In verse 24, Jesus says, For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. Now, what does this exactly mean? Because it can sound a little bit abstract when Jesus uses this type of um, opposing juxtapositional language. And so he fleshes it out actually in the two previous verses, in verses 22 and verses 23. And Jesus says, uh, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Then he said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. And so in verse 22, Jesus says, he, he predicts a prophecy about his life that he must suffer and that he must be killed. And then in verse 23, he basically says, similarly, you have to take up your cross as well. And a cross was an instrument of death. And so what Jesus is saying in verse 22 and verse 23 is this, just as I'm about to suffer and die, so you must also suffer and die. Now, this isn't exactly a great recruitment strategy, is it? And so what does Jesus exactly mean when he says that 
Whoever loses their life will save it. In verse 23, he talks about three things. Number one, we have to all deny ourselves. Number two, we have to take up our cross. And number three, we have to follow him. And I just want to flesh those three things out for the rest of the sermon. So firstly, we have to deny ourselves. Now, whenever we hear that phrase, deny ourselves, inevitably, our first impression is that this sounds like unnecessary and cruel asceticism. It doesn't sound exactly very enjoyable, and I want you to know that, ex- that actually the opposite is the case. A failure to enjoy the world is a failure to enjoy the creator of the world. A failure to enjoy culture is a failure to enjoy the creator of all culture, which is why scripture is replete with passages like, let us eat and drink to the glory of God. Fatalism is, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Christianity, let us eat and drink to the glory of God. So I want you to know that the point of this passage is not to deny ourselves pleasure. Okay, so uh, the Reformed Baptist preacher, I think 18th century, Charles Haddon Spurgeon once said, tonight I shall smoke a cigar to the glory of God. One of the most influential pastors uh, in recent history. And so the point of this passage is not to deny ourselves pleasure. And so here's the question, what is the point of this? What exactly are we called to deny ourselves of? And to put it very simply, what we are called to deny ourselves of is not chocolate for Lent or social media for Lent. What we're called to deny ourselves of is anything that gets between us and God. If there's anything that is impeding our relationship with God, that is what we are called to deny ourselves of. And typically, the things that impede our relationship with God are not bad things, but they're good things. So let me give you an example of this. In the fourth century, the North African theologian, Augustine, wrote his famous book, The Confessions. For those of you who are um, uh, uh, into literature and history, you know that the Confessions are the first autobiography ever made in history. And if you read the Confessions, one word can summarize this book, and that is the word desire. What is desire is two things, wanting and doing. We want things and we do things. And if you read the Confessions, you know that one of Augustine's major struggles, the desire of his heart, was to live a very sexually promiscuous life. But here's the thing. If you read the Confessions, you also know that in Augustine's early 30s, he converted into Christianity. And while Christianity satisfied his intellectual desires, it didn't satisfy his sexual desires. And so as a result of that, every day, there is this constant battle with the desires of his flesh and a desire to please God. Every single day, Augustine faced this battle. And if you read the Confessions, one of the lines that Augustine says, and I quote, is this, my old loves called me back. They tugged at the garment of my flesh, and they said, are you getting rid of us? And every single day, Augustine felt this tug on his flesh. On the one hand, a desire to please God. On the other hand, a desire to gratify uh, his sexual lust. Now, we all have things that impede our relationship with God or things that get in the way between us and God. It could be our subterranean lust, 
but it could be other things. And again, typically, these are not bad things, but they're good things. So for example, work. Work is not a bad thing, but a good thing. But when we overwork because of our own personal ambitions and our hard drive, as a result of that, we don't really have the time anymore uh, to give to God. And all relationships require time and commitment. And so as a result of that, something has to give. And inevitably, it's your relationship with God. Or it could be not that you have no time, but that you have too much time. And you don't know what to do with yourself after work. And so you binge on Netflix or social media or other forms of entertainment. It could be uh, a relationship, which is not a bad thing, but a good thing. But if it's a toxic relationship, that relationship is pulling you actually away from God. Or it might not be a toxic relationship, but it could actually be a great relationship. And you've waited so long to find the person. You're so tired of, of being on all these different apps, and you found the person, and you're intoxicated by them. In fact, you almost idolize them. And so they sort of become your functional saver that you're always going to first, and you're spending so much time with them to the neglect of a another relationship that you have with God. It could be your thoughts, bitterness towards other people, callousness, um, impure thoughts, thoughts that are driving you away from thinking about the right things and instead you're thinking about the wrong things. We all have different things that impede our relationship with God. And what this passage is saying is that we need to deny ourselves of uh, specifically those things. Let me read for us uh, a quote which can be found on the first page of your bulletin uh, from Tim Keller. And Keller says, people sometimes say, I'd like to be a Christian, but will I have to do this? Will I have to give up doing that? Will I have to pray, give up sex, quit my job, change my views? Certainly questions like this have some legitimacy because you do need to consider what it will cost you to become a Christian. Jesus himself tells us to count the cost of discipleship, but I'm afraid many people want to negotiate the cost rather than count it. They are willing to give up things, but they won't give up the right to determine what those things are. They want to be in a position to do ongoing cost-benefit analyses on various kinds of behavior, which keeps them in the driver's seat uh, on the throne of their lives. So here's a question. How do we live a life of self-denial in a self-indulgent world? And here is the second thing. We are not only called to deny ourselves, but specifically we're called to carry our cross. Now, what in the world does that even mean? Because in the 21st century, we've sort of sanitized and sentimentalized what crosses are, so much so that we wear crosses as a piece of jewelry around our neck. But I want you to know that if we all transported from the 21st century world into the 1st century world and we wore crosses around our neck, people would be utterly shocked. Why? Because a cross was an instru instrument of torture and execution. Only the most heinous people were hung on crosses. So it would be the equivalent today of wearing an electric chair or a noose around your neck. It would be totally unthinkable because the cross of more than any other symbol of the first century, was the most abominable and reprehensible symbol of that day. So what then does Jesus mean when he says that we are called to carry a cross? Well, again, a cross was an instrument of death. 
And so what Jesus is saying is that we're called to carry a cross and something about us needs to die. Now, whenever someone in the first century world was crucified on a cross, they were submitting to that government authority. And similarly, when Jesus says we're called to carry a cross, what we're saying is we're submitting to his divine authority, his rule over our lives. So then what is the thing that needs to die about us? What needs to die are our rights, our autonomy, our freedom, and our independence of declaration for him. That is what needs to die. That is what needs to be put to death. In other words, the self needs to die. Let me, let me flesh this out uh, a little bit more on the first page of your bulletin from the 19th century theologian George Mueller in his book, Answers to Prayer. And Mueller says, there was a day when I died, utterly died, died to George Mueller, his opinions, preferences, tastes, and will, died to the world, its approval, died to the approval of my friends, and since then, I have studied only to show myself approved unto God. Now, here's a question. Why would any of us want to live this type of life, this type of life of denial, this type of life of sacrifice? And the reason why we the reason why Jesus can say that is because you already do. You already live a life of denial. You already live a life of sacrifice. If you want something bad enough, if you want something bad enough, you will deny yourself certain things for that thing. You will sacrifice willingly certain things for that thing that is the center of your life that you orbit around because you want that thing enough. A few years ago, I was talking to someone who started their own business, and the person uh, absolutely loved it, and they said, I wouldn't trade this for the world. But here's the thing. They were trading it for certain things. They traded their business away for their physical health. They had dropped 25 pounds in two months, but they not only traded away their business for their physical health, but their spiritual health. Because this was a new business, they were now working seven days a week and they no longer went to church, and his spiritual life just eroded. When you want something bad enough, and we all do this, we're willingly ready to deny ourselves certain things and willing to sacrifice certain things. Now, why do we do this? Well, in his Pulitzer Prize-winning book, The Denial of Death, Ernest Becker talks about how we all pursue personal glory projects, how we all pursue immortality projects. And the reason why we pursue our own personal glory projects and immortality projects is because this is the conventional way of thinking. By pursuing my personal glory project, I will get a sense of fulfillment, meaning, purpose, security, comfort, and satisfaction in my life. And typically it's things like work, money, power, hedonism, travel. Uh, these are the conventional ways of uh, acquiring and uh, pursuing uh, those things. But I, what I want you to know, and this is the reason why the, this series is called The Upside Down Life, is that the conventional way inevitably leaves us all feeling a bit empty. When last week we all heard about Anthony Bourdain committing suicide, one of my friends was having a conversation with her coworker, with his coworker. And the coworker just could not understand why Bourdain would ever commit suicide. I mean, he had everything. He was getting paid to live a decadent life, to travel and eat good food. 
And so my friend's coworker just couldn't understand why in the world would anyone take their own life when they have the life that we all envy and we all desire. And in his show, Parts Unknown, I believe it was the one in Argentina, I want to read you a quote from Bourdain himself as he's talking to his therapist. And this is what Bourdain says. Bourdain says, I'd like to be happy. I'd like to be happier. I should be happy. I have incredible luck. I'd like to look out the window and say, yay, life is good. I have the best job in the world. Now, here is what Bourdain knew that my friend's coworker did not. Bourdain knew that he can get everything out of the conventional way of living, immortality project, personal glory project, that anyone could ever want. But despite that, he still felt an emptiness inside. He found temporal happiness, but he did not find a lasting happiness. And if you're at a church long enough, (laughs) you will hear hundreds of examples of this, hundreds of examples of how the conventional way of living leaves us empty and dry. Now, here's the question, why is that the case? Well, let me read us uh, one other quote from C.S. Lewis's magnum opus, Mere Christianity, and Lewis explains why the conventional way of living just does not work. And Lewis says, God made us, invented us as a man invents an engine. A car is made to run on petrol, that's gasoline, and it would not run properly on anything else. Now God designed the human machine to run on himself. He himself is the fuel our spirits were designed to burn or the food our spirits were designed to feed on. There is no other. That is why it is just no good asking God to make us happy in our own way. God cannot give us a happiness and peace apart from himself because it is not there. And so here what Jesus is doing by saying whoever loses her life will actually save it and whoever saves her life will actually lose it is giving us an alternative way of living our lives. Not the conventional way, but the way of the cross. Now what does it mean to follow Uh, the way of the cross, because it doesn't exactly sound tantalizing to us. And I want us to know that oftentimes, as human beings, change in general, changing the way that we think and changing the way that we act is often a very difficult thing. In their leadership book, Flight of the Buffalo, which is the final quote in your bulletin, James Blasco and Ralph Steyer say, change is hard because people overestimate the value of what they have and underestimate the value of what they may gain by giving that up. So here's a question. If there is an alternative way of living life, and it's not the conventional way, but it's the way of the cross, what possibly could I gain by following this way versus that way? What can I possibly gain? Well, think about it like this. One of the reasons why we're willing to deny certain things and sacrifice certain things is because we feel like that thing can give us a sense of meaning, purpose, identity. But you know what we all want more than anything else, even more than meaning, purpose, fulfillment, satisfaction, comfort, security? You know what we all want more than anything else? We all want to be loved. That's more important than even security or comfort. All of us just want to be loved. And so here's the question, how could you possibly know 
you are loved by the things that you sacrifice yourself for. You can't. You know why? Because even though you sacrifice yourself for your job, your job doesn't give a rip about you. It will never sacrifice itself for you. Even though you sacrifice yourself for, uh, for money, money will never sacrifice itself for you. Even though you sacrifice for comfort, comfort will never sacrifice itself for you. All the things in life that we sacrifice ourselves willing, willingly for will not willingly die for us. But there is one person that would gladly, willingly sacrifice themselves for you, and it is none other than Jesus himself. And that is how we know how much he loves us. And so I want to read for us verse 22. Verse 22 again, it says, And he said, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Why does this verse say that he must suffer, that he must be killed? Well, keep in mind that Jesus didn't have to die for us, but he was glad to die for us. Why must he suffer? Why must he be killed? It's ultimately for us and out of his overflowing love for each and every one of us. Secondly, the reason why he suffered for us is not only out of his love for us, but also because forgiveness always involves a cost. A couple weeks ago, my daughter Logan, two and a half years old, she broke Elijah's cell phone. Elijah is uh, one of our musicians. He's a keyboardist that sounds like Sam Smith. Uh, whenever he sings, everyone stops singing. Uh, two weeks ago, actually, I wasn't preaching, so I was just sitting in the back worshiping, and I actually saw, I actually witnessed this. When he started singing, I saw one guy elbow his friend and go, yo, that's the guy I was telling you about. <laughs> that's Elijah. My daughter broke his phone. She dropped it, and the screen looked like a spider web. Now, at that point, Elijah could do two things. Number one, he could make my two-and-a-half-year-old daughter pay for it, which is really me paying for it. Uh, or he could absorb the cost himself and pay for it himself. Now, Elijah is not only a very gifted musician, but he's also a very gracious person because he chose to absorb the cost himself and to pay for it himself. Forgiveness always involves a type of sacrifice and involves a type of cost. Now, similarly, it is with our relationship with God. We did not break God's cell phone, but we broke our relationship with Him. It did not cost uh, God, three, and it doesn't cost God $300, $400 to fix this relationship, but it actually cost Him the price of His Son's life. The fact that it cost God the price of his son's life shows how valuable that thing that was broken was. An iPhone is expensive and it is valuable, but it is only a few hundred dollars. How much more valuable is our relationship with God if it actually cost him the gift of his son's life? How would you ever know God loved you unless he were willing to sacrifice himself for you. Can you name any other religion out of the five major ones where their gods sacrificed themselves for you? You can't. So how would you know that God really loved you? You can't. But you know what? It goes both ways. 
We know how much God loves us because he was willing to sacrifice his only son for us, but it goes both ways. How does God know how much you love him unless you're willing to sacrifice certain things for him? It really does go uh, both ways in this reciprocal relationship. In Philippians 3, uh, Paul says, whatever I consider gain, I now consider loss. He says, furthermore, I consider everything I've gained a loss compared to knowing the surpassing worth of who Christ is. Everything I've gained, I now consider dung, excrement. Um, The literal word is crap compared to knowing who Christ is, compared to what I have gained. Now, here's what Paul is saying. What Paul is saying is this, what I once considered sacred, I now consider crap. My three PhDs from Harvard, crap. My two Pulitzer Prize winning books, crap. Now, how is it that what Paul once considered so sacred, he could so easily let go of and not identify with and even call it dung? You know why Paul was able to say that? It's because Christ is better. Everything I've lost doesn't compare to what I've gained. And so similarly, if we're going to take up our cross and follow him, our modus operandi has to be that Christ is better. He's better than anything else I can gain. So here's a question. Why do you follow Jesus? Why are you a disciple? Why are you a Christian? Elizabeth Elliot has this fictional story where Jesus is with the 12 disciples, and he tells the 12 disciples to carry a stone for him. But because Jesus didn't specify the size and the weight of the stone, Peter, being the more pragmatic type, picks up a very small stone and puts it in his pocket. And around noontime, Jesus says, now take out your stones. And Jesus says, abracadabra, and the stones turn into lunch. But it's in direct proportion to the size of the stone. And so Peter's lunch is like one or two bites, and he's grumpy, he's hangry, and he's upset. And so after they eat lunch, Jesus again says, will you carry a stone for me? And Peter thinks to himself, fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me. And so he carries this large boulder on his shoulder, and he's just walking around following Jesus. And around dinner time, Jesus says to the 12 disciples, now throw your stone by the riverbed. And so they all throw their stones by the riverbed, including Peter, who throws this giant boulder off his shoulders, and Jesus does nothing. And Peter's thinking to himself, what's up with that? I thought you were going to turn this into like a huge buffet for me. And knowing what Peter was thinking, Jesus looks at him and he says, Peter, who were you carrying this stone for? Was it really for me or was it really for you? And I would say similarly, why are you in this relationship with God? Is it only for you or is it more importantly for him and because of what he has done for you? Why do you follow Jesus uh, the way that you do? Well, I want to close with two applications. Um, If you take a look at verse 23, Jesus not only says that we're called to carry our cross but he says that we're called to carry our cross daily. Not weekly, not monthly, not yearly, but we're called to carry our cross every single day. 
one of the ways that we're reminded of carrying the cross every single day and renewing our vows to him is actually church, which takes place once a week. In theological terms, we would say that our Sunday church services are a covenant renewal ceremony. Now, what in the world does that mean? A covenant renewal ceremony is similar or akin to renewing your wedding vows. You're renewing your commitment to one another based upon the promises you made in the past. You know what we do every Sunday service? We're renewing our vows to God. This is actually why Sunday service is so important. We're reminding ourselves and renewing the pledge that we made to God to follow Him with total devotion and dedication. But we're not only renewing our vows to God, but I also want you to know more importantly, He is renewing His vows to you and reminding you of the promises that He made. That no matter how much you fail, and how much you kick him out of the center of your life and replace him with you being on the throne, that his promises are secure, that your forgiveness is granted and eternal life is yours. That's why this is so important. So every single day, we're called to carry our cross. And one of the most helpful ways of doing this as we leave our Sunday service and as we wake up tomorrow to start another week on Monday morning is this. Anytime you say yes to something, you're saying no to something else. And anytime you say no to something, you're saying yes to something else. So what are the things in your life you need to say yes to? What are the things in your life you need to say no to? On this day, I'm going to say no to gaming so I can say yes to something else. On this day, I'm going to say no to going out again to say yes to something else. What are the things in your life you need to say yes to? And what are the things you need to say no to? And the reason why this is so important is because God cares less about what you do for Him. And He cares a whole lot more with who you are becoming. And we are all called to be disciples, students, and followers of our Lord who went to the cross for us. And therefore, we carry a cross as well. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, we confess that we have longed too much for the comforts and treasures of this world rather than for your enduring kingdom. We have loved the gifts more than the giver. In your mercy, help us to see that the things we strive for are shadows, but you are the substance. That they are quicksand, but you are a mighty rock. That they are shifting, but you are an anchor. Thank you for forgiving us through the riches of Christ and freeing us to live a new life faithfully devoted to him. In Jesus' name, amen.